0: Peace, we Today on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast, we have a guest who helps us bridge the gap between the past, the present, and the future. Ethan Kurzweil, a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, who's leading Bessemer's crypto efforts and the Bessemer DAO, comes onto the show to help us make sense of the evolution from Web 2 to Web 2.5 to Web 3. Bessemer is a storied venture fund that got its start back in 1975 after spinning out of Bessemer Trust. Fast forward to today, they're one of the best technology investors on the planet, investing into industry-defining companies like Shopify, Twilio, PagerDuty, DocuSign, LinkedIn, Twitch, Yelp, Wix, SoRare, and many more. Ethan brings a fascinating perspective to the world of Web3 and consumerization of private markets investing, given that he spent the early days of his career at an early metaverse company, Linden Lab, the creator of Second Life, and also worked at Dow Jones, where he managed the turnaround of the international editions of The Wall Street Journal. Ethan then went on to join Bessemer, where he's a partner investing into developer platforms, data infrastructure, digital consumer applications, and consumer-facing crypto. He's invested in the likes of PagerDuty, Intercom, Twitch, LaunchDarkly, and crypto companies like SoRare, TRM Labs, and Fold. Ethan and I had a fascinating discussion about the evolution of venture capital, Bessemer's thesis on Web3, why Bessemer decided to start a DAO, and how it's innovating on portfolio services by building out a community, And how Web3 gives people the primitives to fulfill on the premise of decentralization and ownership. Thanks, Ethan, for coming on the Alcos Mainstream Podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. We're going mainstream. Ethan, welcome to the Alcos Mainstream Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael. Excited to be here.
0: Oh, excited to have you on there. There's so much to unpack at the intersection of everything that you've done as a venture firm, the evolution of venture, how you're thinking about private markets, and more recently you launched the Bessemer DAO. There's a lot to talk about there, but first, I would love to start with your background. You have a fascinating background that includes operating experience at Linden Labs, which built Second Life. You worked at the Wall Street Journal. I would love to hear how that all brought you to the world of VC and how that's informed your work, both as a VC, and as you think about the crypto world?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Those are all awesome topics that are all near and dear to my heart in some way, talking about our DAO and the evolution of venture and crypto and web. So I'm excited to be here. In terms of my background, I've kind of had two different phases of my career pre-venture. I've been a venture for 14 years, all those 14 years of Bessemer Venture Partners, which was a happenstance kind of serendipitous thing as to how I got here that we can talk about if you're interested But I had this phase where I was involved in starting a company when I was in college. It was the dot-com era, and the joke at Stanford was, hey, how's your startup doing? That was the greeting that everyone gave, and we had a startup too. Then after the uh, bubble burst, I went into more traditional businesses and eventually ended up in the media industry working for the Wall Street Journal Dow Jones. And then my bridge back to Silicon Valley and to more innovative tech and the internet was working at Linden Lab. In terms of how it informs things, I think Linden Lab was, even though I was there very briefly for a defined period of time, but that defined period of time was during the up phase when it was the thing that a lot of people talked about as this coming metaverse type concept. We even used that term that now the cycle of life repeats itself and we're hearing about the metaverses again. And that this was gonna be the harbinger of how people were gonna live and work in the future to second life is completely dead. There's no one there. And there's no utility to the app. And by the way, all the predictions that we ever made about it were completely false. And of course, like the truth is in the middle. What I took from that is there was this sort of fundamental misalignment of what the company understood its users to be and what they wanted and what they did versus what perhaps we thought or certain people expected or wanted or how it was talked about. And so the narrative kind of ran away and that caused some Decisions to be made that perhaps weren't optimal for the particular users that we had. We weren't optimizing for their experience. We were optimizing for maybe a a fantastical experience that we wish that some people could have in the future. That's why I'm very focused on this concept in venture that everyone talks about, around not just product market fit, but customer market fit. Are the customers the one that you want to have?
0: From that point, what about your learnings from working with Second Life and Linden Lab, and what you just said about customer market fit, which you've done tremendously well with a number of other companies across enterprise and consumer, you invested in Twitch. What advice would you give crypto founders who are focused on building out the metaverse or other aspects of consumer on-ramps to the crypto world?
1: It's a great question because it's often the area that I'm most mystified by in the Web3 crypto world. But sometimes it's because I don't get it. And sometimes it's because I think there's the same kind of fundamental mismatch may exist in some of these projects where there is usage and there's utility, but it's not actually what people think it is. It's not actually the mission or vision of the project or company or consortium or DAO isn't actually why people are there. A lot of times it's there because people are trading something and making money on it, or they've found some other orthogonal consumer value proposition or utility or something that relates to what the company's doing, but it's not actually why the company exists. We found ourselves sometimes sitting on the sidelines of those where we don't believe that the raison d'etre, the fundamental guiding premise of why this project was formed is actually being fulfilled through the activity that's going on. Now there's a lot of times where it is. We looked at a lot of the early gaming projects that exist in the web three, or sometimes it's like a web two and a half modality where there's an NFT component to something, the NFT is really fulfilling a purpose. In Second Life, we did have this concept of people's ownership of their digital assets transcending just the game, but something that they can really take and profit from and use in other contexts. And you see that with a lot of NFTs.
0: So we're going to start at the end and go backwards because I think there's just so much rich stuff to talk about when it comes to the crypto world, and then we'll get to the private markets. But when you think about the crypto world, you mentioned meeting the consumer at their point of need, putting things in a way that they can understand it. How do you think about the world of crypto at Bessemer? And what's your Web3 thesis?
1: Bessemer always takes a very roadmap orientation where we try to say, what's our thesis? And then how do we see the particular category or, or theses evolving and interplaying? And then what are the criteria that we apply to evaluating you know, projects? And I'd say we get that 51% right, which turns out in ventures maybe enough to be a, a, a decent, perhaps even exceptional venture capitalist. But what we try to do is refine the 49% that we don't always get right off the bat. So going in our theses, we have three categories of areas that we find really interesting. One is the consumer crypto phenomenon. That's often a a Web3 concept or usually involves some sort of NFTs. We made a number of investments in gaming. That's the area where I think, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing a lot of the innovation and a really direct alignment of the customers with what the NFT or what the digital project enables. There, we look for this idea of the fungibleness of the tokens, the fact that you can own something, you can develop it, you can build it, and then use it in a number of contexts, which is kind of how the real world works. Like you might buy a piece of art, then display it or loan it or do other things with it. You might build something that has a life beyond just the particular place you built it or initial use case for it. It may be something that you've you've used in lots of different contexts. That's one of the things that's really interesting about Web3 is this idea that The ownership is conferred on you and that you can look it up and anyone can look it up. And there's this common standard for whether you own something or not. There's a related thesis we have in the consumer. This is, again, the first category of theses surrounding Web3, which is around collectibles and around status conferred in the digital world. This already exists in social media, but in a lot of contexts had gotten toxic with incentives for likes and follows and things like that, where you have to be as dramatic as possible. Web3 has a possibility of building a new primitive for engagement because you don't necessarily have to profit. And all of this stuff can be measured and counted on a blockchain that doesn't necessarily have to have a profit motive. It's just a record of your past experiences, your engagement with a a product. I'd love to see creator tools reinvented that way and maybe a kind of some kind of a socialization context, which now our human need is fulfilled through social media, but maybe one day social media could be reinvented for this kind of era.
0: One thing Bessemer has done extremely well is invest into companies that arm the rebels, arm the creators, so to speak, like Shopify, which is an investment you all did very early on, and you've done stuff in gaming that extends to the crypto world, companies like SoRare. What have you learned from Web2 investments that you've made that have informed how you've thought about the world of crypto? Yeah,
1: it's a really good question. And we always look at a new roadmap from first principles, but we try not to fully reinvent the wheel. With the Web3 crypto world, there's actually a lot of lessons that you can take from one to the next. For example, in the creator tools area, the sort of arm the rebels modality, there's often a very nuts and bolts trade that exists among the rebels where their incentive structure are facilitated by the platform. Not necessarily to make the platform better, but to make their own lives better. We've seen a lot of businesses, and this happened on Twitch even, certainly Shopify is all about this. It wasn't always what was short-term best for the platform, but long-term always led to the most healthiest ecosystem was to focus on what was gonna be in the best interest of the creator community. Twitch was always very focused very early on. And their creators were the lifeblood of the company, Let's get them paid faster and let's make sure they have the tools to take what they're doing, not just on Twitch, but in lots of different modes and media. Shopify was all about empowering this, this creator class. Pinterest, to some extent, too, wasn't necessarily about commerce from day one, which is ultimately how the business manifested itself, but was about fulfilling this collector need. That, I think, is no different in the Web3 context, too.
0: That's a really interesting point that you bring up, what you said about making sure you're meeting the needs of the creator, or in the case of Pinterest, the user, and thinking about how incentive structures in Web3 may actually be more aligned with the creator and their fans or community. Do you think that this should be the next natural evolution of how to provide the best toolkit, the best services, the best experience for creators in their communities?
1: I think of Web3 as just giving everyone the primitives to be able to fulfill on that premise. The premise being allow the alignment of incentives between the creator and the whole ecosystem, all the participants in the ecosystem, the customers of that creator, the viewers of that creator, to align all of that. But you definitely see projects where, despite having the primitives that could lead to alignment, There isn't an alignment. It's much more about how do we create value that goes into a token that's maybe publicly available, often which is held by the project inceptors. And again, I'm not saying it's like nefarious motives. It's just more of a short-term profit maximization than a long-term one, or has to do with creating certain trading dynamics among the NFTs themselves or tokens or the interplay of those things, or meeting the needs of the exchanges where these things are going to be traded, All those folks have different short-term and long-term incentives, and I don't think this world will be any different than the Shopify ecosystem, where if the creators win, ultimately the creators, the builders win, um, everyone else will win. I do think it's a natural evolution, but there's definitely the same potential perversion of purpose that sometimes leads to the death of some of the other ecosystems that have tried this.
0: Do you think that perversion of purpose is related to the fact that we're now seeing the financialization of everything or almost everything where the tokenization of many of these assets creates a tie to potential financial gain that may or may not be good in some cases? Is, is that where both platform, or in this case, protocol and creator have to be really careful as they think about how to construct a web three experience for both creator and and community
1: for sure no doubt it doesn't necessarily just have to be with a profit motive in mind oftentimes you see the same perversion of purpose for you know public recognition for affirmation advancing a particular political ideology or a particular movement or a cult there's all different motives that speak to what gives them a fulfillment that oftentimes can be profitable, but it can be about a lot of different things. Here, though, you have a situation where, given all the booms and busts of crypto, there's often a lot of people have been brought into the space via some boom cycle where they've seen this sort of rapid run-up in the price of something or the value of something. And they've looked to pattern matches. all humans do, but certainly venture capitalists are very guilty of this. They look to pattern match everything based on some phenomenon. And that phenomenon may have been healthy. It may have been the Ethereum ecosystem that led to all of these great innovations in terms of what you can build on top of smart contracts. And then looking for that in places where maybe it doesn't necessarily exist. Then you're trying to short-term profit maximize on lots of different things, which can, given your question, because there is such a quick, potentially liquid tie to making a lot of money really quickly can pervert
0: that purpose. Does that change how you think about both the types of Web 3.0 companies you think should be built and the way in which they should be built. And also you have a number of Web 2.0 companies. And you've also mentioned the term Web 2.5, which may be the, the bridge in between. And I want to get into that more. But Web 2.0 companies may be trying to figure out their way and how to live in the Web 3.0 world. Could, does this tie between the token and, and whatever the product is and the financialization of that product does that change how you think about how both Web2 and Web3 companies or protocols build their respective businesses or communities? For sure. And I actually think like
1: Web3 doesn't necessarily need to involve a financially driven token. We're going to talk about Bessemer DAO in a minute. Bessemer DAO eventually will bestow on anyone an NFT or multiple different types of NFT depending on their role. Our explicit hope isn't that that's traded, that NFT has value, and I think we're going to set it up so that it can't be at least initially off the bat, having a distributed ledger where consensus is built via a decentralized way by a whole ecosystem of people that verify things doesn't necessarily have to go with a currency. Cryptocurrency is one of the meta themes that comes out of that. That's very cool. And it can allow for the hook or the potential lever that we maybe didn't have before where we can value someone's contributions or we can value... Someone's asset very quickly in a marketplace-like fashion, but that's not the only thing that blockchain tech enables. Some of the Web two companies that are looking to Web two and a half themselves, I think, are cognizant of that. In fact, I, I think they've done a nice job. I'm, I'm thinking about companies like Patreon, like Discord, like Roblox, to some extent, like Twitch, where they've brought in Web three elements uh, without necessarily issuing a token off the bat and trying to tokenize themselves and kind of force feeding that on people. And a lot of the Web3 projects too, have been really thoughtful about how they set up their tokens or when they're going to set up their tokens. I don't think this is a universal critique that I I was making earlier, but there certainly often are not a direct tie as to how the token makes the customer experience better. And that's where you have to wonder, is that just about some short-term profit maximization for someone?
0: Your comment there makes me think, of what you said about Web 2.5. And when I look at the Bessemer portfolio, not surprisingly, incredible list of actually Web 2 companies that happen to serve the crypto world. You're tremendous SaaS investors. You invested in TRM Labs. You're tremendous gaming investors. You invested in SoRare. You are great fintech investors. You invested in Niding and Fold. You found a way to exist in current world venture capital, but also figure out ways to build the infrastructure that's enabling Web 3 to exist and grow. What has informed your views on that? And why have you focused on those types of companies as opposed to going all out on tokens, which you may get to at some point. And I want to get to, as we talk about venture capital, but I think it's a really interesting point and one worthy of making that you've invested a number of great companies in the crypto space, but they are companies where you're investing equity into those companies.
1: And and we've done a number of token arrangements too, but not the bigger ones, as you point out. I think all the companies you mentioned were straight up equity investments, but it's both the blessing and the curse of the roadmap driven approach that we have here. And we're comfortable with it, But there's some trade-offs. I think your question alludes to those trade-offs. When we go into a space, we'll go slowly and then ramp up into it. But we're not really ramping until we have a very defined thesis. We fully understand what's going on. And we have some proof points of that, of of a full cycle of investment, not necessarily exiting investment, but realizing the thesis. Like we see the companies succeeding on the theme that we're investing on. We were more hesitant to invest in some of the pure token projects early on. We would have done well to do that. And and some folks had that thesis earlier than we did. But we like to be able to flip the switch and go all in. when we feel like we really know what we're doing and we really understand the enabling characteristics, which is, I think, where we got to eventually. So, yes, a lot of the early investments we made, they look more like equity. They have characteristics of companies we understood before. So rare in gaming, TRM Labs, which is a blockchain analytics for rooting on financial crime. We really understood how to sell SaaS solutions to people. Some of our bigger bats have that characteristic today. Now, a lot of our exploratory stuff does not, and has tokens and has all the sort of new machinations of this new world, but the earlier ones didn't have that yet.
0: Which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that because I think what's important to note here is that the rails to Web3 need to be built. There's a few hundred million blockchain wallets in the world, seven plus billion people, We are still at the infancy of crypto developing. So building those bridges between the traditional world and the crypto world or Web3 is actually really important. What in your mind is going to be that thing that makes the the damn break to use Nigel Morris from QED recently talked about this on a podcast he did with some crypto founders in their portfolio. And I think it's a really good analogy because when I hear you say that we've gone all in, we've done our work done the research, we took our time, invested in companies that are on-ramping people to this world, you've now gone all in. So you must think, to some extent, the dam has broke, or at least there's a lot of holes. The dam
1: is breaking. It actually speaks to our third area. So I only spoke about one when you asked me initially about our thesis, the consumer one. We're also interested in DeFi, and we're interested in the infrastructure tech that's going to enable this transition. That's the best way I can say it. We'll come up with a pithier title before we put up a bunch of content around it, but let's just talk about crypto infrastructure. And that's what's needed here, like very obviously. We needed it at Second Life too, by the way. The process of onboarding your GPU to get in and have a good experience in Second Life was not one that most regular users were ready for. I think that's true of crypto, certain aspects of Web3 projects as well. A lot of the best or most interesting experiences you can have require a grokking of the technology or of the way wallets interface or of exchanges or of some cases, all of the above that the casual user doesn't have time for doesn't really want to understand, nor should they have to. Now, you don't really understand before you um, make a transaction on a Shopify site, the way the SSL cert is signed by somebody. So, you know, it's a signed transaction that's decrypting the code before it gets you. Right. Like nobody really cares about any of that, nor why would you want, however, in, Crypto world, there's a real need for enabling technology that bridges kind of just like a browser type or a wallet type experience to actually being able to securely access your tokens or your funds or your NFTs or some digital passport that enables you to have some experience. We're pretty actively investing in that layer. TRM Labs that you mentioned earlier is part of that. And there's a number of other projects that I'm really optimistic on that allow you to take a custodial type experience where your wallet or your funds are held by you know, Coinbase, FTX, Binance, whoever, and be able to use them in this new world without really thinking about that interplay. That does not exist now. I think it's a really amazing data point that these services have as much usage as they do, despite the fact that you have to be so Web3 native and cognizant of how the tech works to do it. It really suggests that the dam will break wide open once there's more of that connective tissue there.
0: In your mind, what's the most important thing to make that happen? Is it something like wallets? Is it institutional custody that creates more capital flowing into the space? Or is it companies like SoRare, which you don't necessarily need crypto, you can use the fiat on-ramps from MoonPay and Ramp for people to buy these NFT collectibles on SoRare? What in your mind is going to be the thing that pushes it over the edge and gets hundreds of millions of consumers to enter the crypto world.
1: Yeah, so like SoRare and Dapper Labs as well. They're the the makers of NBA Top Shot and CryptoKitties. Creating an ecosystem where it's, it's all contained and you don't necessarily have to think about where your funds or your assets are custodied. I think there's a more meta layer there, more like the VeriSign of crypto that speaks to both identity and the way we authenticate and the way we store things. That wouldn't be VeriSign. That would be more like custodian level where you authenticate with somewhere, it's you, they know it's you, there's a tie to all the various wallets you have, or you don't even necessarily need to know that things are, are signed to a wallet on, on the blockchain somewhere. But there's a tie to all the stuff you have somehow, all those other concepts are abstracted. And then that kind of wallet identifier domain, whatever it is, can be used in any ecosystem in the world. In the exchanges, you go to or Maker's Place and you're able to buy something it works in the Web3 context of you're playing a game. There's just a sort of seamless operability the way the links work on the internet that everyone's used to. I think the user experience has to evolve too. I don't know that that's a company. I think that's just some standards have to exist. Like we know links are blue and have underlines under them. Like they have to be that way. It just is. Everyone knows that now. If there has to be a little bit of a standard interfaces for some of these things where it's just the visual representations has to be consistent. And that'll get people a lot more comfortable. Like when I do this, this other thing is going to happen.
0: When you say identity becomes this really powerful way in which to operate within the world of Web3, do you believe that NFTs are the best use case in that regard?
1: I think NFTs is maybe a best early use case, but not necessarily the only way to do it. I could definitely see a world where it's not necessarily an NFT. It's just digital items or uh, d- digital attributes are signed to various people or to various wallets. Like, you know, I made these actions on this site, owned this thing, defeated this monster in this game, did this other thing. And that's all part of my profile when it's all digitally signed and verified on some particular chain. I don't know that you necessarily need to be an NFT to have those same primitives happen. What's interesting is about attaching different attributes to different people. Right now, the NFT is a cool way to have an ownership of a thing you can see, whereas owning my data sounds so ethereal and abstract. But once you can use your ownership of your data to get access to experiences that are different or get into a game at a higher level, or maybe even think of in the college context, I've done these particular courses, so I don't need to do entry-level algebra anymore. All that comes together and it's a tokenized way to represent experiences or attributes or ownership of, of things. Tokenized, quote unquote, proof of work. And that's real proof of work. If you've actually come through and done something, that's what's interesting about play to earn. Maybe this is a little bit of a non sequitur. Uh, I think it has the potential to be transformative. Like we were talking about earlier, I don't know that what's happening now is actually emblematic of what it could be, but incentivizing people to do real tasks Real things that have utility for somebody is pretty cool. There's some really interesting fitness apps now that take advantage of that exact same concept in terms of motivating people to take a certain number of steps and things like that. And that it's all verifiable on a chain somewhere.
0: Yeah, I think there's some really interesting things. Rabbit Hole is an interesting project that's doing that around education as a way to help people learn about the crypto world. I do think of, to your point, time as an alternative asset. I actually wrote about this topic where you think of game playing, so rare Axie, and other play-to-earn games. If you're making money, in those ecosystems, that is a decision of where you're spending your time, but you're actually making money. And I think that's probably a good transition into you have thought about private markets more broadly and the consumerization of private markets. NFTs and collectibles are one example of that. So rare is a great example of that in terms of how people are playing a game, but also making money. And they have NFT collectibles, which could be considered digital sports cards to some extent, or digital assets. You've thought about this pretty comprehensively beyond crypto. How do you think about the world of private markets and why are they consumerizing in your mind? I think
1: this goes to something that really does transcend crypto, and that's the democratization of information and access to information. You no longer need a select group of very small, of some industry like VCs, like angel investors, to bestow authority on these are the interesting companies, these are the interesting technologies. Crowdsourcing that is pretty effective. Part of the reason, I know we're going to get into Bessemer down in a bit, but part of the reason we wanted to be part of that project was crowdsourced thinking can really yield to better results than a couple of men and women in a room doing it. And so I do think the world tends towards more open information, both because of all the communication channels we have. Really, it's just the internet tends towards the dissemination of information more quickly. And we now have consensus mechanisms. I'm not speaking just about crypto, but consensus mechanisms of boiling up, well, how many people think a certain thing? We can get pieces of information out and see, okay, there's a lot of people that agree with this particular person, so they all follow them on Twitter, or think this technology is really transformative, so they're willing to join a DAO to talk about it, or willing to uh, join a Kickstarter campaign to get it pre-funded, or something like that. That trend towards democratization of private markets has been marching on for a long time. There's some very specific platforms that help with that. AngelList is pretty interesting in that regard. They allow pretty seamless syndicates to be formed, to be able to invest in things that maybe no VC or angel firm is going to find compelling, but really are. There's things like Kickstarter, pre-funding campaigns. And now there's DAOs that often have a financial component as well. So I, I think we're headed that way. And crypto is going to be part of that world. It's not the only innovation that's That's there, but it's like the next step in making that even more seamless.
0: Do you think that because crypto is making this more seamless, this also may change how firms like Bessemer, other venture funds think about their own LP base where there's potentially a different set of LPs thanks to the infrastructure that's being built in private markets, lower minimums into funds, the creation of DAO infrastructure and tooling like syndicate. Is that what's going to happen in your mind?
1: Yeah, democratization doesn't necessarily mean Every individual person is going to get access to invest in VC firms, although I would love it if that were true. but It's
0: a regulatory question.
1: There's a regulatory issue there. And then i also just not arrogant enough to think that that's the best way necessarily for everyone to to, to be able to put their risk capital to work to further innovation is through VC investing. I think there'll just be a lot of different vehicles that depending on your level of sophistication or interest, you will have access to from pooling your capital with a few friends to be able to back a friend of yours launching a business, kind of like old school friends and family style rounds, to very institutionalized forms of capital. I think all of those things are being democratized in their own way. I don't know that necessarily the LP base of firms like Bessemer and others changes dramatically right away because of it, because I think we're just one part of the capital stack. But everyone's going through this reinvention at the same time. And hopefully the net result to the end And investor or just consumer of goods and services is that they have more options as to how to
0: participate. You bring us to a really interesting point, which is Bessemer is a storied firm in Silicon Valley, started in 1975, one of the older firms. And fast forward to today, or maybe a few weeks ago, you were the first, I believe, of the traditional venture funds, if not one of the first, to create a DAO. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the evolution of Bessemer as a firm and how that's tracked to the evolution of venture and why you think it makes sense to do something so radical potentially as create a DAO as a venture fund?
1: Great question. Well, what do we think we're doing here? And so so just some history to talk about the evolution part of your question. As you said, Bessemer about 40 years old. Actually, for the first 20 years of our history, we were a spin out of a family office where we got most of our capital from. And then we open up to outside capital as the latter half of our 40-year history. And now we're experimenting with launching this DAO, which is not an investment vehicle. It's not it's not part of the investment vehicle, although there's certainly possibility that members of the DAO would, would have their own investment funds, that they'd be able to invest in various projects, and, and we would love it if that happened. We've always been fine with experimentation. I mean, I don't think you can be around as long. It's not just the 40-year history we have because we existed as part of the family office as the private company investing arm of our major LP for 70 years before we even were spun off as a venture firm. They were one of the first organizations to do private company investing. This is the um, Phipps family office that led to Bessemer Trust that got established around 1911, 1912. They experimented with the idea of making private company investments and the types and forms of those investments. Then, spinning off a venture firm, we've evolved in a number of different formats. And it really speaks to the ethos of our firm and our style of investing, which has been to have a unifying theme around roadmap areas and coming together as a firm to be able to help each other think through those but giving individual investors and their teams a lot of autonomy as to how to pursue that. We've tried lots of experiments in our history, and this is just one of those that the folks interested in Web3, there's a good number of us, seven or eight at the firm, that's part of the crypto team, thought this would be an interesting experiment to try, and we get the support and resources from the firm to go do that. But it's really bottoms up, people come up with ideas. Lindsay Lee on my team came up with this idea for a DAO a few months ago. Community team got really excited about supporting it. We had to think through, what does it mean for a venture firm to support a DAO? DAOs are decentralized. We had to be very upfront with everyone that we're going to launch this and we're going to try to put our resources into to make it successful and then decentralize it. So that there was no misunderstanding about what it actually meant. And we'll see how where it goes. But it really was just an idea that we decided to try.
0: What do you think are the pros and cons of launching a DAO with the connection to an existing brand versus making it a completely separate but maybe still tied, dotted line kind of relationship. Why did you decide to make this the Bessemer DAO as opposed to something else that you were just one participant in and maybe a loud one, but one participant in?
1: We want to be very upfront about our intentions and our hopes, but also that this be decentralized and this evolve on its own in a community-driven way with a group of people coming together with like purpose to be able to produce some sort of results or have some sort of impact on something we gave us five particular themes that we thought would be interesting for it to focus on off the gate of course those could evolve some of those could take some of those could not but we also wanted to be really upfront that it was our project we were launching it and we felt like if we didn't say that call it bessemer dow at least initially it's not to say it couldn't be renamed but call it bessemer dow initially that it might Seem tricky or, or sly that we were trying to launch something, but and have some impact on how it got formed, but not necessarily tie it too closely to ourselves. We wanted to be as upfront as you can possibly be about the formation, as well as the end goal, and as upfront that it's going to take some time to get to that end goal. It felt like this was the best way to do it in a way where we weren't misleading anyone. We were very upfront about what was going
0: on. You you bring up a really interesting point, though. Somebody needs to be the leader. Even in a decentralized Web3 world, you look at some of the DAOs that have been formed and there's a small number of people who are still doing most of the work, who are forming the mission, forming the vision, coalescing the community. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just human nature and organizational psychology. Do you think that's the way DAOs are going to evolve as well, where there might be a small number of people who make decisions or or bring people in the community together, but have to convince them to make a certain decision. Kind of like in traditional stock markets, there's proxy voting. So you or I may own Apple stock, but we're not necessarily voting on all the shareholder resolutions.
1: I think you'll see DAOs evolve like governments in that there's some governments that have the directest forms of democracy, although total direct democracy doesn't totally work because, like you say, who's organizing who's figuring out what's important, who's organizing the initiatives, who's actually executing on them. There has to be some incentive structure set up for that and some people that are represented to carry out those missions. I think some Dao's will look like representative democracies. Some will look like the Chinese Communist Party, where there's a few group of insiders that make all the decisions. And that may be okay. I don't mean it in a pejorative way at all. It may just be the way the Dao is. And people that contribute their time and resources to that Dao trust the The DAO leadership there, and there's probably going to be some dictator DAOs too, where it's either associated with a company or a particular project, and there's a leader or or set of leaders that just run it. I don't know that there'll be any one standard. I hope that there'll be a few standards so that you can say, this is the kind of DAO we are. This is how the uh, voting is going to work. This is how the decisions are going to get made, and this is how the work gets done. There probably needs to be five or six flavors of that, like we have government systems in the world Although even that trends towards all kinds of different permutations of what a democracy is or what a dictatorship is. I think there's going to be a little bit of chaos here, but we may get a little more standardization over time too.
0: So if you see DAOs being an evolution in where venture goes or investing goes, or even organizing communities to help companies, build companies or protocols, what do you think the skill set needs to be for a younger or future venture capitalist?
1: I think of it like a continuum, like I mentioned, in terms of the evolution of, of our firm and of private market investing in general, that you need really flexible first principles thinkers. You don't necessarily need someone that's down native or crypto native that's on FTX all the time trading tokens or is in every Discord channel on the planet. But you do need somebody that's comfortable with taking in information in different types of ways and not necessarily rote applying a past due diligence model that has been working but might not work in the future. SaaS investing has a certain style of the way you evaluate technologies and talking to customers and things like that. That may look very different in the Dow future state or in a crypto native state where you may be comfortable seeking information from all kinds of different new forms. That is what we hire for when we look for future VCs here at Bessemer as well as I think lots of our peer firms is someone that can come in and be willing to reinvent how they get information and how they weight information and how they make decisions based on
0: the particular area.
1: This area requires a lot of reinventing, but not reinventing the entire wheel, just reinventing the mechanics of how you evaluate them.
0: Well, you're doing something that seems to be trying to live in both the current world, because that's your LPs, you have to be responsible to them, but also do things that look to the future world. and. It sounds like what you're doing with the Bessemer DAO is bringing together a community of people, some in your portfolio, but many outside your portfolio to both help companies in your portfolio, but companies, protocols, the broader Web3 community writ large. This seems like somewhat of a next evolution of portfolio services, which is a cool way to think about it, rather than have a team of people internally. You're doing this with the collective and the community. So one, how have you thought about that? Because that is such an important part of venture. And two, how do you think community plays such a role in this?
1: I'm glad you asked it because that was actually one of the original bullet points right under Bessemer Dow was reinvention of portfolio services. And not to say we wouldn't do traditional central portfolio services anymore for, for this world. But the kinds of questions and the kinds of needs were, were changing so rapidly and were so different that we felt like if we could contribute our central portfolio services team to getting a DAO going and successful, that there could be some community helping each other that fulfills on a lot of those needs. That's part of the experiment that that we've tried and that we're seeing the results of as we, as we embark on it. I do think community becomes very, very important as a core portfolio services offering for all firms. And we've made a big investment there. So I'm definitely talking the Bessemer book that I think that's actually one of the most significant differences you can make as a VC is providing a community for your founders and their teams, because it's very lonely being a founder or even an executive at a company. You don't necessarily right out of the box have a peer group. And there's a lot of ways that a VC firm, where there's a lot of non-competitive companies facing or will be facing or have faced the same kinds of challenges that community can help solve. So will the DAO structure decrease the cycle time on those learnings and that community orientation? Don't know. It seems to be working for lots of projects. uh, And our hope is that this group of people or people that join in the future can be part of doing that. And it stands to reason that it will be a part of it. it. won't be the whole answer, though. So we're also trying to do some more central things as well.
0: Are there certain aspects of the way a DAO is structured and what tokens mean in terms of incentivization that will enable you to do things that you couldn't do otherwise? The, the cynical way of looking at it would be, well, you have a great stable of advisors already, a number of amazing founders who you've worked with, they could be part of your Bessemer Advisor Network, and they could help your companies. What about a DAO changes that versus the traditional kind of portfolio services model? It,
1: I mean, everyone's busy. I, I think our founders are awesome and our teams are awesome at helping each other, but but that's not the core responsibility necessarily that they come in and think, okay, I'm going to you know spend my day counseling others. And again, I think they do a great job of doing it. And so a DAO, and also we've opened it up as much as we can, there's potential incentive mechanism They are built in right into the structure of how, and again, we have to build all the various incentivization and not make it too overtly about, oh, I want to get to this different level or this different status, because there is something nice about doing something out of the goodness of your heart too. But you have the potential to be able to build that right into the structure of how the organization forms and develops. So I'm I'm optimistic that could work. And you've seen it work in a number of different other types of DAO organizations. You have that potential here as well. Is it necessarily better or worse? I don't know. It's different. And I think it has the potential to be a level up there, but we'll see.
0: On, on this point more broadly, and not necessarily speaking to Bessemer, but speaking how you think about the evolution of venture, because this ties into DAOs, this ties into Web3, this ties into the evolution of private markets more broadly. What do you see as the evolution of private markets being? Is this a world where VC gets disrupted by things like DAOs? Do we see just a totally different structure for venture capital in the future?
1: It's a it's a good question. It could happen, and I'm not smart enough or secure enough to say it'll never happen either. I think the primitives that the actual ingredients that good VCs provide in terms of being the supporters that help founders build enduring companies are still needed. Could they be provided through a DAO instead? Maybe it's possible. Right now, is that happening? Not exactly. There is this sort of decoupling of the help that founders get from the capital, and DAOs could be part of that, or it could be a way that they all come together and the incentive structures of investment DAOs are set up such that if you do provide more help, you get more return on your investment dollar. But that's all theoretical constructs today. And so I feel secure in knowing that the services that we're offering founders and the training we've given each other here to help support them. Is what the market needs. Going back to our, where we started this conversation around customer market fit, like, I feel good about the, the product that VCs offer or that that we offer here, but that doesn't have to be that way forever. There could be a better way to do it, and we'd be totally game to evolve if the market evolves and do it in a different way. My guess is, if you look at list, didn't really put seed firms out of business, or or even angel capital didn't necessarily. Disrupted, it just facilitated it that Web3 and DAOs and community driven investment projects will be part of the landscape and are are not going to make obsolete other parts of the landscape like venture capital.
0: What venture seems to have done with things like AngelList or other crowdfunding platforms, Republic, et cetera, is it's made more participants come into venture, probably made certain firms think about what they want to be in a more protracted way. We've seen many of these bigger funds like yourself become platforms, have early stage funds, have growth funds, do more things, or have the the crossover funds come downstream. And it's made this look more like a mature asset class. Is there anything from that perspective, as you've seen in the evolution of venture from both your understanding of the history of the firm and having worked in mean, 14 years, you've lived through a number of cycles and a number of different types of LPs have entered the chat, so to speak. Has that informed how you think about the evolution of of venture more broadly?
1: No question. I think venture went from this small subscale niche asset class that was perhaps too good for its own good. What I mean by that was it was a little bit too small relative to the scale of the opportunity. We, uh, another way of saying that is just that the venture capitalists of this is before my time 20 years ago were really right in terms of where they spent their time. There was enough coming innovation in terms of the private markets, private companies were going to generate enough return in terms of what products that they built as well as the sort of like market cap that was generated from all the M&A and public offerings of those companies that it was a really lucrative industry for a long time. Uh, and so like any supply and demand, like any part of the market, part of the capital stack, supply and demand principles work and lots of money came in and lots of money came in in various forms. It came in in angel capital in terms of wealthy founders and folks that had benefited from that giving back and wanting to be part of the next cycles. It came in in the forms of you know, public market investors, the crossover funds that you mentioned coming downstream to be able to invest before companies got to a public offering. And all different machinations in between those things. I think that has forced anyone that participates to have to defend their position in the ecosystem and really articulate to the market in terms of the crispness of their product offerings why they're there. Competition just makes everyone better. I think Web3 will be the same, both the new entrants that come in because. Um, They want to participate in this particular Web3 oriented way via DAOs or via token style investing, as well as anybody that wants to participate in it as well. And frankly, that's part of our motivation behind launching the DAO and being associated with that is to learn about that so that we can adopt what the market wants us to adopt as quickly as we see that it's relevant. I think your question's a really good one. Just because we set up a portfolio services team when we did 10 years ago and it has the things that it has, those might not be the right things in 10 years. We need to know
0: that. I think what you're hitting on is a theme that's threaded throughout this entire podcast is understanding the user and building products or services for those users. You've done that in a number of ways and the companies you've invested in in the way you've built Bessemer and the way you're evolving Bessemer, which I think is really cool to to see and and think about. And I think that mindset is probably what will succeed in web three too. the companies or protocols that build for the user and have a real utility, whether or not their token goes up or down a really volatile way will succeed. And that's what people should be hopefully investing into from a consumer perspective, as, as we've talked about private markets and the consumerization of private markets. Let's hope these individual investors are educated in a way where they can invest in high quality assets. But a ton of fascinating stuff here. You make a good
1: point though, because I I was thinking that as we were talking about the democratization of private markets, that there's a risk with that. The reason they don't democratize faster is because people really can get burned. And that's something I'd like to see evolve too. Like Our company TRM Labs helps businesses interoperate with crypto assets in a more secure way so that they can be secure in it. We need consumer tools too to help people know what they're investing in and what they're doing. And there's some of those things are getting built now. There's really good public analytics products for the blockchain, but we need to democratize access to research and access to high quality thinking, or people are just going to get scammed. And so that's, I think, part of this evolution also that again, if we can be part of that, we'd be all for it.
0: Do you think the, the- Projects that democratize access to this type of research and thinking, do you think they need to be Web3 native or can those be more like the Web2 or Web2.5 businesses that serve the Web3 world?
1: I think it depends on the topic. Some of them could very much be Web2.5, Web2.5 y things that apply principles that have worked at investing in the Web2 world and help take those same approaches to Web3 and give people access to the same kinds of information that they might have had previously. Kind of like we adapt our roadmaps that we thought about what makes for a good gaming studio in Web2 and apply that to, okay, just because you have NFTs doesn't necessarily mean that those principles don't apply anymore. And so I think there'll be some that look pretty traditional and there'll be some like how you create liquidity pools with your token and make a market off the bat when you've got some digital assets trading on some exchange that those are new-ish, although they probably have some analogs in the old world too.
0: So you've mentioned digital assets, you've mentioned private markets. I always on this podcast asking everyone what their favorite or most interesting alternative investment is. What is yours?
1: Oh, favorite alternative investment. Oh, that's a good question.
0: Beanie Babies? No. Um, It's never been mentioned on the podcast, but it could be. It's a collectible. (laughs) (laughs) Certain kinds of oddball collectible. I like going down deep rabbit
1: holes on the internet. So if there was a way to invest in the output of these mysteries that get set up, like where are the origins of Bitcoin or something like that? Or what is a particular token or NFT project going to be used for? I would love to invest in the projects that lead to those things. And there are actually, this isn't probably the right answer to your question, but there are actually all these companies forming that are kind of making a market and trafficking in this information. So if you have this information, you can sell it to the community for gain that might make good investable assets someday.
0: You're bringing up a really interesting theme that I want to end on because it's a fascinating topic to talk about, which is the idea of the financialization of everything. Web3 and tokenization to some extent enables that. Is that a good thing?
1: Not necessarily. I think it's it's like how social networks enable anyone and everyone to express an opinion and everyone to sort of vote for in the forms of follows and likes and things whose opinion they think should be seen the most. That's great, that's freedom of speech writ large, but it also leads to this cascading of misinformation and people competing for attention as opposed to salient, deep first principles thinking. The analog to the financialization of everything has the same pro and con, like anyone can make money on their art, their talent, their their code very quickly or their project. They can create a token around it and um, profit from some share of that. But it probably comes with some warped incentives to create the greatest kind of short-term momentum, as opposed to the longest term, most useful item or product or technology. And so there's a double-edged sword there. And hopefully there's some governing mechanism, which hasn't really existed in social media yet, and is, I think, problematic for the world right now, just to be frank about it. I hope there's some governing mechanism that that comes in here that trends us more towards a positive outcome, but time will tell. I don't know.
0: Two really great points that you bring up in there. One is perhaps not everything should be investable. It's not always a good thing. You've seen it and mentioned it multiple times in this podcast. Not everything about social media is is healthy or great for people. And yet that was an unintended consequence. And then two is you mentioned education of the investor, so important and these open source analytics platforms that help people do that. Those things seem to be incredibly important points for people to take home is how do we build this space out? And there may be something
1: great about those things existing and the goal not being profit, but being truth or consumer utility. And if there's a way to give people credit for that, a way that motivates the right kind of behavior, motivates the right kind of critical thinking, thought, access to information, that would be very, very cool as opposed to What's the quickest path to being able to profit from a given set of activities? Let's hope. I'm really optimistic about it, but we've seen some cases where perhaps with the best of intentions, the incentive structures don't quite lead to the result we all want. It's
0: a great way to end this podcast because you've seen multiple phases of the internet. And if there's one thing to think about here, it's how do we create things where there may be unintended consequences and may create incentive structures we don't necessarily know or want, then how do we deal with it? So... Ethan, it was a pleasure to have you on the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your view on so many different interesting topics.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me, Michael. This a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about Alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at alt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day.
1: We're going